Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. Take a seat, grab your Bibles as our kids head back towards Kids Church. And um, let me explain kind of where we're going this week and then next week. So we are close. We will wrap up First John next Sunday. So, so this morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And then next week, to cap it all out, we're going to focus just on verse 21, which is um, it's, it's a command for us to keep ourselves from idols. So we're going to spend some time next Sunday looking at idolatry. Um, I just wanted to extend this out one more week. Okay, I, just, I wasn't quite ready to be done with 1 John yet. So uh, no, it's really in, in the Greek, uh, verse 21 is its own paragraph. It's a sentence all unto itself. So that's, that's kind of how we've been breaking this down. So that's how we're going to do it next week as well as we wrap up First John and then get ready to uh, dive into Hosea. Uh, so, so just curious, how many of you have ever heard a sermon series preached through the book of Hosea? We got one, we got two. Three. Okay. That's kind of what I figured. It's, it's not one that, that like when most of the time when preachers are like, hey, where am I going to go? Like I really, I, I want to preach, I want to preach an exciting, relevant message where Hosea, that's where I'll go. So um, no, but it's, we're, we're going to see it's very, very applicable, I think, to our culture, to where we are, to see the, the um, outstanding, amazing love of God towards his people. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. We're going to spend five or six weeks there in, in Hosea, and, and we'll have a good time. Uh, so this morning, we're going to focus on really kind of the culmination of, of John's letter. And, and in verse 13, which is where we're going to begin this morning, we have kind of his whole purpose for writing. So everything that he said up to this point reaches kind of its climax in verse 13. And he says, this is, this is what, if you walk away from this letter with nothing else, this is what I want you to to know in verse 13, okay? So, so that's where we're going to be. We're going to be verses 13 through 20. So if you will uh, turn there, and then let's stand together as we read aloud the word that the Lord has given to us this morning. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It will be, uh, those words will be on the screen, and let's read them together. John writes, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance that we have to gather together and to open up your word. We pray that you will speak to us through your word. Change our hearts, change our minds, change our actions where it's needed. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Man, thank you. You can have a seat. Uh, so kind of the way we've been doing this lately is we'll have one overarching point. It's going to kind of lay out where we're going and then kind of three things that, that describe or that help explain what, what the main point is. So the main point this morning is really simple, and yet it's something I'm afraid many Christians never really grasp. And, and it's simply this, what we see in verse 13, that followers of Christ can have confidence in our salvation. Followers of Christ can have confidence in our salvation. Now, in verse 13, John says, he lays out his whole purpose for writing. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, I want there to be no question in your mind as a follower of Christ that you have eternal life, that your life is secure in Christ. Now this summer, as we walk through some, some kind of foundational Baptist beliefs, uh, this is going to be a big one that we touch on. What we believe about salvation, meaning we believe that as the, the common vernacular, common way to say it is once saved, always saved, kind of the more, um, more theological term is what we call perseverance of the saints. We believe that, that salvation, first of all, wasn't based on you to begin with. It was based on God's goodness and his love for his people. So once you accept that free gift of salvation, you can't lose it. And yet, what study after study after study has shown is that believers across the board wrestle with this most foundational of truths. Or wrestle with, man, am I really saved? Can I really know for sure that I'm saved? Or, or do I just kind of live this life hoping that that my salvation is secure, and then on that day that, that I finally die and am standing before Almighty God, we'll find out for sure. Maybe. Hope so. And, and I think the Bible repeatedly would say, listen, that's not the way you have to live your life. In fact, I would say that as a follower of Christ, if you don't have that assurance, that, that uh, confidence that, that our identity, the, the whole thing we've been talking about throughout 1 John, our identity is secure in Christ Jesus. Your faith will be hampered in everything else you do because there will always be that underlying question, well, is this real? Am I really saved? And so uh, John says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, or as we looked at last week, who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you can know without question, that you have eternal life. A couple places in the Bible where, uh, where we're gonna, this is going to be re-emphasized to us, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, uh, Paul's writing to the Romans, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I love the way he writes this, right? Because he, he, he talks through almost everything. Neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case I missed anything, nor anything else. 
So what can separate us from the love of God? Paul would say, nothing. Nothing. And it's important to remember the context he's writing in, because he's writing this to believers. He's writing this to Christians. Saying, listen, you're secure. There's nothing that's going to be able to separate us from the love of God. Then Jesus himself, in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, he was saying this. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Look here. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So listen to what he's saying. He's talking to his sheep. He's talking to his followers. Not going to be able to snatch them out of my hand. Not, not only that, my, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one's going to snatch them out of his hand. We are secure in Christ. As we begin, anytime I begin a process of discipleship with somebody, this is one of the first things we're going to touch on, is assurance, this confidence that they can have in Christ. Why? But because it's, it's so foundational that if, if this isn't, if, if we don't understand this confidence that we have in Christ, nothing else is going to make much sense in the life of faith. So, so listen, if you're, a, if you're here and you would claim to be a believer, you say, man, I, I would like to say, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm saved. I, I hope I'm saved. Listen, I would love to visit with you because I, I don't want you to walk around thinking and hoping. I want you to walk around knowing that you're saved. Or as, as the old country preachers, maybe you heard this before, do you know that you know that you know? Right? Are you absolutely certain that you're in Christ? I'm not going to question your, your, your salvation experience necessarily. I'm not going to say, well, well, if you're not 100% certain, then we better jump back in the baptistry and dunk you to make sure we wash the, that extra sin off. No, that's not what I'm saying. I, I, want, I want you to know that you are saved. I want you to have that confidence. So, th then as followers of Christ, if... If we're guaranteed of this assurance in verse 13 and elsewhere in Scripture, how then can I experience this? Not just can, how can I know it um, in, in my head. How can I experience this confidence in everyday life? And so we're going to look at three things through this passage this morning that will help us experience our confidence. Help, help us to live out this confidence that we have in Christ. And, and so uh, I want us to see three things. First of all, followers of Christ Jesus are called to express real faith. Uh, look with me at verses 14 and 15. So he just said at the beginning of this, of this paragraph, in the Greek, verse 13 begins this paragraph. It says, um, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Do you, do you see the faith that's present here in these verses? It's faith that's not afraid to take something to Almighty God in prayer. Why? Because I know he hears me. And if I ask anything according to his will, 
he, he hears us, and, and, and in fact, if I ask anything according to his will, I can, I can claim that I already have what I've asked of him. Now, now here's where we get tripped up, right? Because we, we have that qualifying phrase in there, according to his will. That means I've got to pray according to God's will, not according to Kyle's will. And, and where those two things don't match up, it's on Kyle to change my will to match the will of the Father, not on him to match his will to mine. So, so what's John getting at? Because I think oftentimes this has been twisted and it's, oh, you know, you just, you, you just name it and claim it. So, so you want to be a millionaire? You just start praying like you're going to be a millionaire. And then some would even say, and you take that extra step and you start living like you're a millionaire. Don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, what we see here is that prayer changes us. As we spend time in God's presence, more and more, my desires are going to line up with his desires for me. So that the, the better I get to know him, my will is going to line up more with his will. This is what he, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 4.16 it says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Maybe, maybe yours says confidence, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I, I think sometimes our, our picture of God as king, which is right and good, that, that's, that's a biblical picture of who he is, but I think sometimes our, our picture of God as king has made us timid about entering into his presence through prayer. And I think that's why one of the primary pictures of God in the New Testament is Father. See, see, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he started talking about God in a way that no one else talked about God. He started referring to God as my Father. When everyone else had this picture of God who hid himself behind the Holy of Holies and, and could only be approached one day a year by the one priest... And that priest had to go through a pretty uh, intense time of, of ritual cleansing. And in fact, they would even tie a rope around his waist just in case he like, failed to confess some sin and being in the presence of God struck him dead so they could pull him back out without sending somebody else in there who would die walking into the presence of God. This is the picture that, that people had of, of God when Jesus shows up and he starts talking about the Father. Then remember Thomas in John 14 he says, hey, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And, and, and Jesus replies and says, you're still missing it, Thomas. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus gave us a new picture of who the Father was. Not as a king who, who dwelt in his throne room unapproachable by his people, but as a loving Father who wants his children to come and spend time with him. And so, so listen, if, if you're a follower of Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, you, we're given the privilege to enter into God's presence. That's kind of scary, right? And then we, we, don't seem, we, don't, we don't feel like we're worthy. And, and both of those things are correct. It, it is scary and we're not worthy. But the Bible says that 
Christ now stands at the right hand interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit who lives inside of each of us, Romans tells us now, intercedes on our behalf. And, and the phrase Paul uses there is with groans that are too deep for words. So, so, so listen, you ever been in a situation and you knew you needed to, to take it to the throne in prayer, but you didn't have the words to pray in that moment? Like, like, God, I need to give this up, but I don't even have, I don't even have the words right now. The Bible says that the Spirit's interceding on your behalf with groans that are too deep for words. So in those moments when I can't even verbalize what it is I'm trying to say, I know that God knows exactly my situation. He knows exactly where I am. And the Spirit's interceding on my behalf. He's praying for me. We've been brought into the presence of God through Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Um, R.A. Torrey, who was a, a, an evangelist in, in the U.S. Um, during, the eight, during the 19th and 20th centuries, he, he said this, he said, Prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And since God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. Now that's kind of weird, right? And so, so don't, don't, don't get caught up so much in his language. But all he's saying there is simply this. We sell ourselves short when we don't spend time in prayer with God. Prayer is our direct connection with Almighty God 24-7. And, and, and I know what you may be thinking. Well, I don't know how to pray. Well, let, let me ask you this. Do, do you know how to worry? I don't know how to pray. Well, do, do, do you know how to worry? So, so here's, here's a good place to start. Instead of worrying about something, why not talk to God about the same thing you're going to spend time worrying about anyway? Prayer is far more productive, and, and, and can I tell you what? So, so worrying oftentimes uh, comes because of our sense of a lack of control, right? Oh, there's this thing coming up, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know what I can do about it. Um, prayer is simply admitting that you don't have control in the first place. And surrendering control of something you don't have control over to begin with. Through prayer, we express real faith. Real faith that simply says, God, I'm, I'm going to come into your presence. I want to experience all that you are and all that you have. And if we have assurance of our faith, assurance that we have this eternal life, we're freed to enter into his presence. But that's not all. Secondly, uh, followers of Christ encounter real forgiveness. Look at me at verses 16 and 17. We've got some, some kind of weird language, weird stuff happening here. If anyone sees a believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, now, now hang on. What's John saying? 
Because Romans 3.23 says, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And now here he's saying there's sin that doesn't lead to death. They're, John and Paul are, are using this word in a little bit different way here. So we know that sin separates us from God. And, and separates us from God because God's character is holy and pure, and sin is an affront to that character. Sin separates us from God. Now, we would also say that we're able to be forgiven of our sins through Christ's sacrifice. It's what we preach every week. Repent, turn from sin, trust in Christ. What John's getting at here is, is a continual, habitual hardening of the heart against God. He's talking about this, this sin, he says, that, that leads to death. This sin that's on the verge of being not forgivable. Now, now I know, that kind of rubs us the wrong way, right? And so, um, as I was reading this, commentators across the board said simply this. Um, if you're concerned that you've committed the sin that's unforgivable, by the very fact that you're concerned about it shows that you have not committed the sin that's unforgivable. Because what he, I, I think the sin that he's talking about here is what we would call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Simply saying, I don't care. I don't care. What you're doing is wrong. I could care less. Now that's a dangerous position for for a non-believer to be in, a hardening of the heart. It's a very dangerous position for someone who claims to be a follower of Christ to say, this is how I'm going to live, and I don't care. I don't care what God's word says. I don't care if it's sin. This is the way I'm going to go. And God's just going to have to accept the, my, the way I'm going to live. That, that's a hardening of the heart that, that I would say shows they have not, that person has not understood what it means to have their sins forgiven through Christ's sacrifice. Um, and, and so, for, for the person who's truly regenerate, the person who's truly been forgiven and understands, listen, in, in my life, am I going to sin? Yes. There will never be a time in your life as a follower of Christ where you don't struggle with sin. That's a reality of, of the two men, the, the old person who uh, was put to death uh, when you came to faith in Christ and the new creation in Christ that, that, that is, stands righteous and forgiven before Almighty God. That, that's, that's the tension of those two people still wrestling in your life. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, you're never going to reach that point of perfection. So instead, what we look for for maturity in the life of a believer is a life that says, listen, there are going to be times when I sin. There are probably going to be some times when I know sin is wrong and I jump full speed ahead. This is wrong. I shouldn't be doing it. Whee! Here we go, right? However, the, the, the mark of a spiritually maturing believer is not perfection, it's repentance. It's when I'm 
when, when sin is brought to my life, when I become convicted of sin that I've committed, how do I respond? Do I confess it or do I conceal it? Do I repent or do I, do I fight against God's work in my life? And the person that John's referring to here, this, this sin that leads to death, is a person who would say, I don't care. Who's, who, the Bible would say their consciences are seared. They, they, they feel no conviction of sin. They're going to live however they want to live without ever giving God a time of day. Now, as I said, for the believer, you're safe from this sin because of what we've already talked about. As, as, as someone who's uh, being sanctified through the Holy Spirit's work in your life, if you're, if you're feeling that conviction of sin and you're turning from sin and you're trusting in Christ, then you have that assurance that, listen, I am in Christ. I see his work in me, and you can claim promises like, uh, like Psalm 103, 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, now think about what, what David's saying here in this psalm. You know, if you go north long enough, you're eventually going to hit the North Pole and you'll, and you'll be going south. Okay, that's the way north and south work. However, if you head out, head out starting east, you're never going to hit a point where you are going west. I just blew somebody's mind, didn't I? Like, whoa, I never thought about that before. That's, 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 the, way our, that's the way our earth is set up. You can go east forever. You go north, you're eventually going to go start going south. So, so God didn't say here, I've removed your sins as far as north is from south, because there comes a point where, where you hit south. He says, I've removed it as far as east is from west. Moved it as far away as I possibly can. Your sin, if you're in Christ, your sin is no more. It is forgiven forgiven. And, and I would even go so far, this is, this is, pretty, this is very Baptist, but, but it still makes us kind of uncomfortable. He's forgiven our sins, past, present, and future, the moment you become a follower of Christ. So, so here's, here's the kicker. Get this. I don't have to ask forgiveness for sins anymore. That was paid for through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I don't ask forgiveness. I ask God to help me walk in repentance. I don't have to constantly be wondering, man, is, is God going to forgive me for this? The answer is yes. Because the writer of Hebrews says that Christ died for sin once for all. And now I'm free to walk in. I, I, I have freedom to walk. Not as, slave, not, not as a slave to sin, but I have freedom from sin. That's, that's a big difference. Now, verse 17. Let's talk about this for a second, because I, I never want to gloss over sin in the life of a believer, because he says, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin that doesn't lead to death. So, so don't, don't gloss over this and think, well, then, then the things that I do in my life don't really matter, um, because they're already forgiven. If you walk around thinking, I, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and that's all I need, I can live however I want, walk through the pearly gates, slap that card down on the table, and say, here I am, let me in, you've missed it. You've missed it. 
We're not free to sin. We're free from sin because sin is an affront to God's character. When we cheapen sin, we cheapen Christ's sacrifice for sin. Never forget that your sin and my sin cost God his one and only son. Sin's not something to be played around with. Like I said a few minutes ago, I believe that true believers are safe from this sin that leads to death, this sin by which um, we can harden our hearts to the point we are no longer receptive to the gospel. I believe we're safe from that. But don't try it out. Don't, don't, don't see how bad you can be as a believer and still be okay. Because I want my life to look more and more like Christ. Not to just get in by the hair on my chin. I want my life to look more like Christ tomorrow than it did today. So, so followers of Christ, we, we express real faith by, by coming to God in prayer, believing that we have what, what we ask as we pray according to His will, as our will is shaped to His. We, we encounter real forgiveness and experience that. And then finally, we are able to experience real life. Pick up with me in verse 18. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So, so again, John here is going to talk about staying away from sin and, and because we have something better. We've been brought from death to life as followers of Christ. So then if that's true, if we've been brought from death to life, why would we live like the dead? We've been brought from far to near, as Ephesians 2.13 says. Why then would I want to live like somebody who's far off from Christ when I've been brought into his presence? And then he doesn't mince words. He says, in reality, there's only two types of people. Those who follow God and those who follow the evil one. Now, you want to talk about a message that's anti-PC right now, that is not politically correct? It's this. There's really only two types of people. You're either a follower of Christ or you're a follower of Satan. Go preach that in your workplace. See what happens. No, don't. No. <laughs> you, Preach the truth, right? But this is, this is the truth of what, of what God's saying here. You're under the influence of God or you're in, under the influence of Satan. It's not, it's not PC, but John could care less. And, and to, to be honest, I could care less. I say, I say far more offensive things than that, I'm sure. Um, I, I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said this, The worst form of badness is human goodness when human goodness becomes a substitute for the new birth. The worst form of badness is human goodness when human goodness becomes a substitute for the new birth. In other words, 
The worst form of human depravity is someone who says, well, you know, I'm a good person, so I, I think I'm okay. The good things I do outweigh the bad things I do. So, so as long as God grades on a little bit of a curve, I'm, I'm in. I'm good. There is no curve. God will not sacrifice his purity and his righteousness. And sin is an affront. Whether that's murdering someone or telling a white lie, it's an affront to God's character and you're guilty, deserving death. Well, that seems harsh, right? I mean, I mean let's be honest. That, to, to our human sensibilities, that seems harsh. Why? Because none of us is righteous. None of us is perfect. See, all that goes away when we stop comparing ourselves with other sinful human beings and look at ourselves in light of perfect, almighty God. And suddenly, any sin in my life makes me unworthy. Again, the, the world will continue to argue, well, I'm a good person, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. You, you know, I'm... Um, I can be a decent golfer, but I've never played Tiger Woods. You, you don't get to pick your own standard of goodness. God sets the standard. Don't rely on your own goodness. Don't think as long as you're good enough that your good outweighs your bad and, and, and you'll be okay. Because I believe that hell will be full of good folks who never trusted in Christ. In verse 20, um, verse 20 really kind of sums up the entire letter up to this point. We are in the true one that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. See, here's the truth. You don't have to wait until you die to enjoy eternal life because John just says that eternal life is found in Christ Jesus. And when you come to know him, we get to experience something of eternal life. You know, there's a lot of talk, uh, and, and there's some images in the Bible that, that, have, that have invaded our um, language when we talk about heaven. We talk about streets of gold. We talk about my mansion, that I'm gonna, or we sing about the mansion I'm going to have over the hilltop. Right? The, the glassy sea. Can, can I tell you something? I think that when you get there, you're not going to care about any of that. Because eternal life is not found in the stuff that we get. Eternal life is found in the presence of Almighty God and in Jesus Christ. Eternal life's not going to be about, heaven's not going to be about the size of your mansion. It's going to be about finally experiencing the fullness of the grace of God unhindered by our sin. In the little book of Jude, um, which, Lord willing, if I'm here long enough, we're going to get to eventually, this, this little one-chapter book right before Revelation that, that's just packed with all kinds of goodness. Uh, th this is how Jude closes out his letter. Jude is probably a brother of Jesus. 
And as he's closing out his, his little letter, he says this, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. He's able to make you stand. He's able to protect you from stumbling. Do you know this Jesus? Have you come to know this Jesus? Do you have this assurance? As the old preacher said, do you know that you know that you know that today if you stepped out these doors, had a heart attack, dropped dead, your next breath would be in the presence of Almighty God? And can you say you have that assurance because of what Christ has done for you, not because of what you've done for Christ? Don't rely on your own goodness. Don't put your faith in yourself. You're a terrible God and an awful Savior. Put your faith in the one true Savior. Maybe you're here today and you say, I just, I just need some prayer and some guidance to, to have this assurance. If that's you, I'd love to visit with you and, and, and begin walking you through some, some stuff that can help you gain that assurance. Maybe you're here and you'd say, I know, <laughs> I have assurance, but it's not, the, it's not the kind I want. Because I'm assured I've never placed my faith and trust in Christ. Maybe today is the day you need to take that step. However the Lord's leading, you come as we pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ that gives us the assurance that we can have in your presence. I pray that we as followers of Christ would say that we know for certain that we have this assurance that, that if, if my life on this earth ends today, I wake up in the presence of Almighty God because my sins are forgiven through Christ Jesus. So I pray for those of us who, who would say that this morning, yes, we know we're saved. Our lives would be marked by turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Our lives would be marked by patterns of obedience. For, the, for those in the room who would say, I don't have that assurance, may today be the day they turn from sin and trust in Christ for the first time, asking Him, trusting in His sacrifice on their behalf, asking Him to forgive sins. Would you move in our hearts over these next few moments? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to drag this out, but as we stand to sing, you come. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you this week.